Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. This is a blue dot, pale blue dot special. It's actually Blue Dot Festival. I went up to the Blue Dot Festival and uh, recorded an Infinite Monkey Cage and did some stand-up there. Josie couldn't come. I did um, not. Yes, I was away doing my own thing because me and Robin have got our own lives and sometimes we have to live them. There's and episodes of his... Heart to Heart that you never saw where Robert Wagner goes off for a holiday and I Stephanie just, deals with freeways issues. I just want to stop you there and say, Every episode is an, of Heart to Heart is an episode I never saw because we're of a significantly different age demographic. Yeah, but they were remaking them in the nineties. They were still making them in the nineties. So, it's what you weren't 90s, around in the nineties? How much is your agent lying about your um, age nowadays? In the nineties, I was actually busy drinking cider in parks. So. Oh well, she lived an episode of Skins for the entirety of nineties. But <laughs> I was going to mention the, the first person that I interview on this uh, Blue Dot special is Brian Cox. Just before we went oh, on, oh your to... other friend, your your glamorous rich friend yeah. that you moonlight with. Well, I have one, uh, you know, glamorous podcasting pal, mm-hmm. uh, and then so you don't feel too jealous. My other one is Sariatic uh, Fool uh, called Michael Legg. So you're somewhere in between. I like I'm, to think the yes, glamour I'm, stakes. I'm the porridge that's perfect for Goldilocks to eat. Yes. And uh, so I was just thinking, because uh, Brian is on this one, the, the first time you were on Monkey Cage... Uh, the was only the time I was on Monkey Cage. Have you only done it once? Yeah. I thought you'd done it twice. No. We better get you back on then. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. How rude we've been. Science Museum. Oh, actually, I think I have maybe done it you twice. Have done once twice. at Glastonbury, maybe. Yeah, you have. No, yeah. I think no, you I've have done def- it once. I think you've done it twice. We'll no, check. I've done it once. Um, I'm sure it's on our Wikipedia page. And uh, whatever that says, it trumps your memory. Mm. So Don't you, use that word. But, it's too dangerous. Every time you use the word, he gets a bit more power. <laughs> so the uh, you at the Science Museum, there was something rather wonderful, which was you were sat next to Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yes. And, uh, yeah, well, basically what happened was they would go around asking the questions... They would ask Neil deGrasse Tyson. He would say something so overwhelmingly beautiful, succinct, vast, yet real, unpretentious, that everyone would be in tears. And they would ask me, and I'd be like, oh, I fell over! Yeah. <laughs> it would be so awful. Every time I'd be like, please stop making me follow this incredible science communicator, <laughs> this wonderful man of achievement. The merging of the black holes, the power output, the stars of the universe. Josie. The traction engine. <laughs> Thank you very much, Josie. The traction engines are great, though. Yeah, they are. And it was, you were very good on that show, and I can't, Aww. I'm amazed we only had you on once. It's weird. He's a good friend. Um, anyway, so, you have been on have twice. Been uh, we've just had our producer, Trent, explain that you have been on twice. So this whole me feeling sorry for, I can't believe you played I tell that you why. card. Like Eric Morkham with his carrier bags, you walk past me there. I tell you why, I think because the Neil deGrasse Tyson one was so, uh, such a big deal for me. It overwrote the memory of the... In fact, I can remember the other one because there was that brilliant man who wrote that book that I've been reading about Joseph Banks and um, Bollocks, 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 The Astronomer. Richard Holmes. Yes, yes, Richard yeah, Holmes, The Age Holmes, of Wonder. Great, Age it's of Wonder good, by read, Richard oh, Holmes. Oh, it's such a great Won book. Won the Royal Society Prize a few years ago. Really recommend it. It's fascinating about Joseph Banks. Adventure Botany, one of my favourite mixtures of two words in the world. Well, because in the past you've talked about, uh, and you may well in the future as well, that, that collision between art and science yeah. and where you have and to make Joseph a choice Banks, between one another. 
sorry, Joseph Banks was someone that I talked about in my radio show about science because I just found it so thrilling and like, yeah, it, it's fascinating to me. Well, Richard Holmes is a great example because Richard Holmes came from really being a biographer of the Romantic poets mm. and then made this transition to writing some some rather wonderful books which are predominantly about science. But of course, that doesn't mean you have to exclude the poetry as well. Well, context, isn't it? It's so funny when people want to. And I remember when I was studying literature at university. Sometimes I just think. I'm only learning this. I'm not learning uh, enough about the context around it because I don't have time, you know, and I can get potted histories and stuff. But, you know, really, you can only really understand the art and the science of an era if you know about the other one and, you know, and, you, you know... Yeah, no, you're right. It's a big. I always, I, I think that people should, uh, when they get to the point of specialisation, whether it's in physics or whether it's in English literature or whatever, there should always be some form of module which also shows the other side. So if, if you're doing physics, I think it's wonderful to read some of the fiction that has been inspired by uh, the discoveries in physics, by quantum mechanics, and on the other way round as well, when you're reading English, mm. it would be wonderful also to read people like perhaps some of the works of uh, Charles Darwin uh, or, or others uh, of the great kind of poetic scientists or the powerful people like Thomas Huxley. Yeah. Anyway, talking of Thomas Huxley, he's, oh, it's not Thomas Huxley at all, he's dead. So this is what happened uh, when Brian Cox and me just stood next to a porter cabin uh, backstage before going on and doing our first ever oh. open air festival gig. In- Porter cabins, wonderful. Don't do that, Josie, because then they won't realise that that's not Brian Cox. Oh, look, it's a wonder of modern science. I don't know why I bothered interviewing him, I just started <laughs> with you. Anyway, here's Brian Cox. Well, this is a beautiful environment here because we are seeing both uh, the uh, high points of human technology, the Lovell Telescope, and also smelling the low points of uh, cattle digestive... Bovine. Uh, bovine technology. Bovine digestive technology. Um, so uh, I just wanted to talk quickly with you, as Brian Cox, about Carl Sagan. Do you remember the first Carl Sagan book you read? Uh, Cosmos, which was also which was after watching Cosmos on television when I was uh, 12... And is it fair to say that that was the act of seeing that and then reading about that kind of was one of the things that really set you on, on, the, on this path? Yeah, I'd been interested in astronomy, um, <clears throat> just in the sense of looking up at the stars when I was little. But then to see Sagan um, not only speak about astronomy on television in, in a time when, apart from the sky at night, which is once every lunar month and still is, <laughs> it was that's all you could get, to see someone... I think put astronomy and cosmology in perspective, which even at the age of 12 made a big impact because you tend to think of science, I think, certainly at that age, as something about only about stars. So I'm interested in what the stars are and how there are planets around them and why are some red and some of them white. You know, those are questions you ask. But then to to have Sagan change it and say, well, actually, though, cosmology is about the human race. It's about our place in the universe. It gives us perspective as Sagan often said uh, helps us to well it should help us to construct our civilization in a more sensible way so to, to, to be polemical about science and, and link it with the way we behave on the planet that for me was very important that was the first time that I'd heard anyone do that now his writing style I think that because that, he's the reason that I got back into science reading The Demon Haunted World which was his last complete uh, book and there was something that made it so accessible but at the same time it wasn't shallow it was it would change the way you would look at the night sky the way you would look at your own processes of thinking Sagan is a brilliant writer 
as you say. And the, the thing I like about Demon Haunted World is that it's quite aggressive. It's what you'd call Dawkins-esque in a sense, in that it doesn't pull its punches. It says that the, this is nonsense. Like these things, the Demon Haunted World, signs to the candle in the dark. You know, it's, it's a very, it's a very uh, well, a straightforward statement that by following the path to superstition and nonsense is the path to a far weaker and and um, I suppose less stable civilization. But he says it in a beautifully poetic way. Um, he draws the reader in. I, I, yeah, I challenge anyone to to read Sagan and not. Um, well, appreciate the beauty of nature, but he, he can he can teach you about the beauty of nature whilst at the same time attacking your nonsensical position on nature if, if you happen to have one. And I think that's almost a unique skill. He doesn't come across as patronising, um, but if you believe in astrology, then um, you know you will find by the end of the book that you've been called a. What, what, what do you think? What's a good word? Oh, uh, I don't know. Something that would begin with a K in uh, uh, the south and just straight in with an N uh, in the north. Oh, nobber. Nobber, yeah, the traditional. Uh, yeah. Because that's very much... So you, you, you've learned from Carl Sagan's poetry, haven't you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and frequently thrown the word nobber around when necessary to uh, people you may well consider to uh, adhere to excessive charlatanism. <laughs> this is why I've got a long way to go, I think, before I become... <laughs> You're right. I've not yet acquired the art of drawing people in with the beauty of nature and then calling them a nobber, a nobber by the back door, I was going to say. But I, don't, going I don't think I want to... <laughs> I want to go there. The, well, when you write, the, what do you? I, I think in the um, great band. The um, <laughs> I think it's in the before Force of Nature. Was it in uh, Wonders of Life? You, you did write quite. Uh, I mean, all of the the, the work you write is, is obviously passionate. Um, but there was a very passionate piece there, which was kind of both railing against the idea of alternatives to uh, evolution. Um, but at the same time trying to maintain the poetry of saying there is a rich story, that the alternative story has a greater depth and richness. And when you are creating those kind of moments, how, how do again, do you draw on people like Carl Sagan or do you feel that now it's become your natural way of trying to express the language of science in a way that's accessible? No, it, it has become the way that, I mean, I, I'm... You know, joking a bit. Uh, so so I, it has become the natural way that I tend to talk about science now. But it is, I think, absolutely true that I learned that from Sagan because I was immersed in that 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 language and that image and picture of nature that he created from the age of twelve. So it's, it's almost like saying if you learnt to play you know a musical instrument you learn to play guitar because you listen to George Harrison then of course you have elements of George Harrison in there for the, for the rest of your life that's how you learnt and it is true that I part of my fascination of science came from Sagan therefore yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm not. I don't sort of go and sort of plagiarise him and try and find paragraphs that I can write about. But it's bound to be. It's bound to come through because well, I profoundly agree. I profoundly agree with him. Some of his most famous pieces of work, including the bit of Pale Blue Dot, which we might read today, the most famous excerpt of Pale Blue Dot, is uh, very uh, similar to. Who was the lenses guy? Van, uh, not Van Herk. Yeah, Levenherk, isn't it? Levenherk. Le- 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 I can never pronounce it right. Yeah. I pronounced it wrong in Wonders of Life. Apparently, he got loads of letters. 
from biologists. It's, it's Lee Wynn Huick. Yeah. yeah, but I, I found that the other night. I, I was doing a uh, piece about philosopher. I've only just found out who's uh, written a, uh, a fantastic book, uh, A Brief History of Decay, and uh, a short history of decay. And I suddenly realised I walked on stage. Oh, the one thing I haven't done is learn how to pronounce his name. Fortunately, there was a Romanian nearby who yeah. said, uh, Charon will do. I went, thank you very much. <laughs> um, so that, are the, what are for you the most difficult concepts to place, especially when you're doing with the popular science book, well I mean all of them are intended for a popular uh, market when you were for instance writing about uh, quantum me- mechanics and our understanding uh, of that and, and sometimes our lack of understanding, when you sit there with Jeff Forshaw, what were the ideas we thought, we cannot get this into a chapter Yeah, the, the most difficult things are when the, the true beauty is easily seen if you understand some mathematics and that, that happens to be the case quite often. It's one of the great mysteries, I suppose, the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics and the physical sciences, as Wigner put it. Um, So trying to get across some sense of the elegance and beauty of of the mathematics. I mean, the Higgs mechanism is a good example. The Higgs mechanism is a very beautiful, elegant thing. And when when you you spend a lot of time trying to understand it, you'd probably actually do it in a postgraduate course eventually. And even then, I remember doing it for the first time, and it probably took me weeks and weeks and weeks. And then you see how it works. And it's a wonderful, it's a, it's a revelatory moment. And trying to put that into words is impossible. Um, but you can, try, you can try and give a hint, a sense of... It's like trying to... If you'd never heard Mahler's Ninth before and you decide to write an essay about it to someone who's, you know, someone who's never heard it before, and how do you put that into words? You can't. And it does tend to be like that with some of the really... Um, beautiful pieces of theoretical physics. Now, I know one of your favourite <coughs> recent scientific books was uh, Max Tegmark's uh, The Mathematical Universe. Uh, it is The Mathematical Universe, yeah. isn't it? What, what, what was it about that book, uh, which, which I, I have read and understood considerably less than you, but ne- ne- I've really in- enjoyed reading it because every now and again you, you, there's a concept in there which, for someone like me, it does kind of have a little moment of, uh, oh no, my mind's been blown, it's really it? confused. What I like about Max Tegmark is that he's, he's a very, you know, he's a brilliant theoretical physicist, but he's not afraid to go almost, you, you could say, one step further than anybody else. So he'll follow uh, the, the implications of a theory, something like you know, inflation. I mean, I, I think inflation, this idea that there was a time before the Big Bang when the universe was expanding exponentially fast, is, is, seems to me to fit the data very well um but but max is not frightened to go to follow the full implications of those theories through in that case there may be an infinite number of universes a so-called inflationary multiverse um that looks a little bit like a computer simulation it looks exactly like what you do if you are simulating multiple universes to see what happened so he will go that one step further and say okay so what if the universe is a simulation you know whereas most physicists might even though you can be led to these wonderful places um, most people might back off a bit, but Max is unafraid. There's a, there's a great piece in the book about quantum suicide where he designs an experiment um, where he's trying to probe the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, which is essentially that everything that can happen happens and does happen somewhere. So, so there's always a universe in that sense where you didn't die for some reason. There are obvious things like you didn't get hit by the car, but also just, you know, that, that, that high energy, that ultraviolet photon that gave you skin cancer in one universe didn't in another one. Quantum mechanics tells you that's the case. So there are, there are, there are an infinite number of copies of you essentially out there in, in, in this kind of multiverse. 
And he tries to design an experiment to see if you could prove you could find that path through the multiverse in which you always stay alive. In fact, he almost asserts that if your conscious experience is... Well, he almost asserts your conscious experience should continue to exist because it always exists in some universes. It always exists. So you're immortal in this kind of scenario. Now, it's, it's kind of... Even he, I think, at the end says, I don't actually believe this. But it's interesting to follow the logic through. And that's what's great about that book. I should say that... taken to wild places. When we say follow the logic through, this is very much one of those ones which should be uh, an oral test, not a practical. Uh, Follow the philosophy, do do not practically uh, think... Well, I think I'll I'll set up the uh, required apparatus You've got to build yourself a gun triggered by the radioactive decay of an atomic nucleus, so it's quite tricky. (laughs) You know, so, I mean... yeah, probably, you know, if you, if you manage to set that up in your living room, you deserve to live. Also, I suppose you're always thinking, well, the other idiot me blinking went, went ahead with it. So I think, I think I've almost proved my point, yeah. but being alive, maybe this, not. This is, the universe, this is the universe in which you didn't do that experiment, yeah. basically. Thank you very much, Professor Brian Carnes. Project scientist for the Rosetta mission, Matt Taylor. Well, this is an amazing thing, isn't it? Because we've got, uh, we're just watching someone talking about uh, scientific ideas of the end of the earth. In the background, you can hear various different bands. Later on, there's Jean-Michel Jarre. Later on, there'll be talks about pulsars and quantum mechanics. Now, that mixture of pop culture and scientific ideas, do you remember the first time that you saw in pop culture that excitement about science, that gateway from one thing to another? Uh, it's difficult to put a finger on it. It's difficult to put a finger on it. For me, uh, the way that I do this connection, the way that got me into science personally, is science fiction. It's things like Star Wars. I was at a Star Wars convention last week, and that that gets me every time. There's that thing. It's kind of like the modern day storytelling of you know. Throughout the eons, we've had these ideas, these stories around the campfire. That's now translated more into science fiction. Doing that connection with science, science fiction, you drag out what we should be doing with science in the future, maybe from our ideas, however crazy they may be. Well, that's why, because I was thinking, Douglas Adams, when I first read him when I was 10, 11 years old, I thought, oh, isn't it brilliant, this stuff he's made up? And then, five years later, you start reading New Science, you go, oh. Yeah, exactly. It's that, it kind of stimulates the, some of this stuff you can't do. Some of it, there may be a way towards doing that kind of thing, but it's just to give you that idea, and it's actually nice to see that everyone gets involved in it. I was talking to a guy, I was, I was in the Star Trek convention as well, in Germany, and a guy came up to me and said, he was a, an accountant or, I don't know, a policeman or something, and he said something along the lines of, he, he never really could stay in university long enough to be a scientist. This was his words, not mine. But he said his, the closest he can get is to go to a Star Trek convention and dress up, and he feels engaged and connected with science in general, by being part of the Star Trek universe at that point, you know, so it's this interesting connection with storytelling and, and the imagination with reality, and this is happening here as well. So the art crossover, the music crossover. How do you feel about things like Interstellar, where you have this wonderful thing where Christopher Nolan and and and, and uh, all of those work on that go, we're going to make it as scientifically as accurate as possible. Then you have that great moment where every now and again he says, "Do you know what, Kit? I know this isn't scientific, but it makes a great ending." So how do you feel about those? I'm not typical scientist and I'm not as anally retentive as some of my colleagues where I can see the artistic license in giving you a wow factor every so often so you know I can see the other side that it makes people go wow you know there's just something else there so yeah maybe I'm not a good enough scientist to get that upset by it but I can see the other side there I can see that sometimes you need because sometimes science can be a bit too square when you want a nice story arc put it that way 
Well, that's what I think. What for you are the, the, the stories you see out there at the moment? You think those are great entry points for people to just see the words and just start playing with them. Well, that's a difficult one. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I mean, the stuff that I always use when I'm, I'm going to give my Rosetta talk here is that you can engage people just by a story. So it's just by, and, and for me, the mission itself is fantastic because it's got the science there. It's got the, the engagement factor of going on this long journey. It's exploration. More so than a number of other science missions that we do in space. For some reason, Rosetta has this hook because maybe people can personify a long journey and going somewhere that they've never been to before. And that's the same that we get with all the space exploration. But for me, Rosetta's the way that I, I sell and can engage people very easily. So it's an easy job that I've got this afternoon. I just show a bunch of pictures of a comet and everyone's like, wow, I've never seen that before, even though they have, because we've been putting all this stuff out. But there's something about that mission that enables me to come to places like this and engage people on a level where they don't know about comets that much they don't know about the, 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 the geology and the physics and the chemistry some people do some people actually know more than I do but there's something about it that it, it stimulates people's minds and, and, and gets gets the juices flowing even if it's a wow factor and then that comes back to the music and the art here as well that there's a crossover there's not direct connections but there's stuff there that makes you think ah I've been inspired because I've seen a talk here by Monica or someone else, and then they might want to write a piece of music that may not have anything to do with it, but something made them go, I, w I want something with that kind of impact. And they'll go off orthogonally, or another angle, that may not have a direct relation, but it stimulated something. And vice versa, people will go the other way, but actually, I need to think of a different way about the way that I'm looking at something scientifically. But you, not all, it's not easy to draw a direct, distinct path between the two. That's why it's good to just chuck stuff in. It's like when you're cooking sometimes. You add a, an extra spice. Sometimes it goes awfully wrong. Sometimes it goes very well. So I think that's why it's important to mix these things together. That's what I think. Are you curious or aren't you? It's nothing about two cultures anymore. Are no, you actually interested in being in the universe? Then make exactly. stuff, create stuff, investigate it. It's not just being a scientist. It's about just being curious, exactly what you're saying, whether that's artistically or, or mathematically or, or whatever. You know, art, it's just, just do something. See, in any moment now, there is going to be a panel all about Hello Moon, which is a fascinating piece of music um, where Tim O'Brien from Dodrill Bank has taken various, uh, the, well, the noises that have been collected here. Um, but before that starts, so it might, we might stop halfway through this, but um, did it surprise you, something like Rosetta, nowadays, I think a few years ago, I, I don't imagine the public would have been as excited. It seems that space through Hadfield, through Tim Peake, through, through great communicators, through the, the passion of people like you and Monica Grady, it's getting translated again it also into pop yeah, culture. I don't know what it is. Is it about timing? I don't know. As I always say, the missions I worked on before, nobody was really that excited. I'll talk about it in my talk where my mum finally knows what I'm doing as a job because I work on Rosetta, but there, I think there are unique ingredients about that mission. But as you say, there are things going on at the moment that this is snowballing. Um, Good. I don't want to put a finger on it. Whatever. Well, maybe I do because if it stops, we need to re-engage and get it going again. But yeah, it looks good. We're golden. It's great looking out there, and there's going to be people tonight who are going to be pissed up and at the same time excited by the excitement of the neutrinos passing through them. So that's a good yeah, thing. Exactly. They, they might blame that on everything. Yeah. <laughs> or a bad neutrino last night. One hit me so hard. I was yeah. ready. <laughs> Thanks so much, Matt. That's great. Cheers. Someone else who became particularly well-known after the Rosetta mission, but uh, has a small collection of meteorites of their own as well, Monica Grady. First of all, uh, Monica, I was just, uh, you were talking about how the world is going to end, not 
the, the human ways that we might destroy our civilization, but the uh, different things such as the merging of galaxies, uh, such as um, the the death of swelling into the swelling into a red giant of the sun, which I was very pleased to find out might not entirely engulf us. So that that's great that's, news. That is good news. That is that is one small spark of good news in an otherwise dismal sea of astronomical certainty. Do you... Um, well, this is the odd thing, isn't it? Once you start talking about a billion years, I mean, it's highly unlikely our species is going to... Whatever happens, even even if should, should climate remain reasonable enough, should we find different ways of dealing with it? In terms of surviving on a planet as a species, a billion years is a long time, isn't it? A billion years is a long time, and we've only been going 200,000 or something like that. I mean, the chances of us still being here in a billion... It's very slim. But yeah, then you have to think... And this is a really interesting question... What are we going to evolve into? Are we going to evolve into anything? And this is another thing that, you know, I know bugger all about, but it's good to speculate, is that we, species have evolved to uh, take best um, advantage of their environment. Where we change the environment to suit us. If it's cold, we don't grow a fur coat. We buy one. Um, and so maybe evolution's come to an end so maybe it's the human machine interface which will take over and if you read some of Isaac Asimov's uh, uh, fiction you start talking about these disembodied spirits which maybe we will become we see there was an interesting bit where you talked about the eclipse and the fact that the, these will there will be a point where the moon is is now so distant that it will no longer make an effective full eclipse, and that makes me think of Isaac Asimov's Nightfall. Ah, uh, such a wonderful, wonderful story. I mean, so, just absolutely um, so. Uh, oh my 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 vocabulary because I'm getting old. My vocabulary fails me. Such an impressive story for those who don't know the story, and I'm sure nobody who listens to Book Shambles doesn't know the story, but it's about a world that actually has um, is in a system with four stars, and so there's a star in the sky at all times. They, there is never a sunset when all four stars um, go below the horizon, except in very uh, episodic uh, periodic rather circumstances and on this particular story is set at the time when astronomers have predicted that all four suns are going to set and well I can't I can't ruin the story for you but it, it causes a little bit of consternation well they kind of work out don't they that something seems to be going strange with the civilization and this That's right. now does it seem to you odd that we're not even requiring this kind of uh, if we want to say uh, cosmological uh, idiosyncrasy or whatever uh, for the same thing to be appearing to be happening on the planet Earth now uh, Trump Johnson as Foreign Secretary uh, that you go, oh well we didn't even need to be shocked by a sudden darkness just, <laughs> just, just don't get me started I mean, I am at the moment in a period of intense anger combined with frustration and despair I just cannot believe. I mean, sorry. I mean, I'm making an assumption that Book Shambles listeners are uh, Remainers, which is, you know, not necessarily a valid assumption. And I apologise if I. Um, Josie um, won't allow anyone else. Oh right, <laughs> She's very well, that's all right. like that. Yeah. <laughs> I apologise if well, I, I am. It's not even yeah. just that because I think more than the the people. 
I don't think it is about whether you voted Leave or Remain. It's about having a society or having a media culture and a political culture that allows the dissemination of so much mis- and disinformation. Well, people... I mean, I, I listened to uh, David Aronovich on a programme a couple of nights ago, and he was interviewing people uh, from uh, Teesside about why they'd voted to, uh, to leave. And... It, none of it was about. None of it was about economics, or, or even really about immigration. It was about the local community. They were saying, "We want to be able to know the people who are our neighbours, who are up the street. We want to go back." And there was this this real feeling that you know, by leaving the European Union, they were going to get their feeling of, you know, leave the leave the community, and we'll get our community back. And it was bizarre. And I think there was just a complete disconnect between what people thought they were voting for and what is actually going to happen. Although, you know, please, you know, it won't happen. Is there something about, um, in terms of last night when we were doing Monkey Cage uh, on, in the field of Blue, Blue Dot, obviously we read a bit of Blue Dot because we were one of the first things on and we felt that people should hear a little bit of Carl Sagan's Pale Blue Dot where he talks about, you know, think of all the bloodshed through so men can be the momentary master of a fraction of a dot. And I was thinking of, you know, Tim Peake a couple of weeks or even a week before the vote, the uh, Brexit vote, he is one of those human beings, one of the very small number of human beings who has seen the whole of the earth in the field of his vision. He has seen the entirety of it. And yet we have people, you know, Trump is there. One of his key policies is building a fucking wall. And every home shall have a gun. I just, I just wanted to weep to hear that. It's just so awful. What do you think, what, what for you are the great things for people to read to be able to, because if we are going to last as a species, I believe that we must realise that the, 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 uh, the differences between us are very minor and most of them are very often a false tribalism. So is there anything, because I always find with Pale Blue Dot, that is one of those books that does that for me. And, and, and Kurt Vonnegut is an author who his humanity, I always think, shines through. You talked about the future of the human race, his image in Galapagos of the next stage. It's not positive. It's quite <laughs> negative and quite stupid. The, 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 but are the books that you, you, you think, you know what, these bits or pieces of art that touch the human enough to make them see beyond our, 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 our petty arguments pieces of art I mean I mean a cliche honest water lilies just looking into that looking into the into the depths of the, the green and the mauve it, it helps you float away helps you think that actually yeah you know it's the it, it's the the biology and the water and 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 you think scented and and that for me you know calm peaceful I don't know I, I just I don't know what piece of literature I would I would suggest I, I, I really don't know I'm, well I do know but I don't know I don't know how well this would go down but last year Pope Francis produced an encyclical about our common home and that is one of the most powerful pieces of writing I've read for a long time. And it calls, not to Catholics, not to Christians, it calls to people. And if you haven't read that, that is an absolutely amazing piece of work, calling for people to care for their common home. 
and and through that caring for the environment caring for your neighbors and and who is my neighbor and just it, it's a really you know human piece of of work and very very powerful so yes i think that is something that i would recommend that's interesting i don't know if you'd like to talk about it briefly anyway but you 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 are a a catholic would you say and um there will be a lot of people who wonder i've I've known other people who have both a, a faith and are involved in scientific research so you are both looking at the, the grandeur of the universe, the size of the universe, the length of time, the existence of the universe. Do, how do you, I mean, compartmentalise would probably be a bad way, but, but how do you have, the, how do the two things fit together in your existence? Do, do you... Compartmentalise is a good word. And, it, you know, I think that is what I do. I am completely comfortable with, uh, you know, looking at, at humanity, tracing back you know, through Darwinian evolution all the way back to a single-celled organism 3.5 billion years ago. I'm happy to go back further than that to building blocks, to the formation of the Earth, further back to, to the Big Bang. Um, so I am completely comfortable with that. Uh, what I don't understand is when you get to the chain of evolution, when you, when you get to a stage when creatures can exhibit behaviours, you know, love and sensitivity to poetry and appreciation of art and music. And prior to that, sentience and a conscience. And that to me is the the mystery and that to me is where the, the, the God comes in. Now whether your God is a, 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 a a a god which uh, comes through Allah or through Judaism or through Hindu or through through Christianity to me eventually they would coalesce into into one spirit I think is possibly the best I could I could come towards it with and, and, and and the god that I believe in is a god of mercy and love not the god of the right-wing evangelicals who murder doctors who perform abortions. My god is not a god of retribution like that at all. Uh, and the idea of wars being fought in the name of a god, to me, is enough. You should be a Quaker. Move over to the Quakers. Yes, one of my sisters became a Quaker. Um, but I do like, I like the bells and smells. Oh, bells and smells, <laughs> fair enough, yeah. It's the olfactory senses that lured you to God, I see. The, um, that's, now, that's in the wine. Yeah, I mean, straight, well, this, this seems to lead perfectly from uh, what, why uh, you may believe God exists and why you love bodice rippers. So this is something we're going to talk about more at length when you do a, a full-length book shambles with Josie and me. But you, uh, as well as your, your fascination with, uh, with cosmology, with the Rosetta mission, all those things, you also love a bodice ripper. I so, do. Yes, but but I I don't like the stuff which is really you know full on sex. All right, I like I'm more for the gentle romance rather than the you know you know I'm a I'm a gentle person. So, what would be a good example of the um, the bodice rippers of Monica Grady? 
Well, I, it's more sort of the the mills and booms of the uh, you know the eighties rather than the mills and booms of the twenty sixteens because they're oh. a bit they're a bit confront you know they're a bit well if I say anal you know it, it's like you know a route that one perhaps wouldn't want to go down necessarily um, so I prefer the gentle romance I like the I like the sort of you know their eyes met across a crowded room sort of thing so yeah so the I mills and boom they don't do they what happens is they find themselves I mean the time you're talking about certainly the late 70s is people placed in a situation where like the one I'm thinking of is the challenge in which Saxon McAllister an outback farmer uh, meets the uh, the young woman goes out to be his secretary she's always lived in the city so you um, you, you have a secret Love these as well. Far from secret. <laughs> and uh, rash intruder. We could talk about that one from 1980. But it, but what I find very interesting about some of those, the older books, Stormy Vigil was the first one I read. Yeah, Lighthouse. They're, they're very sexist. The man is always dominant. The woman is always the secretary or the nurse or the what. Which is why I like the Regency romances. You oh. see, I don't do the westerns or the medicals or the baby boomers. I do the Regency romance. I am of the era of Georgette Hayer. See. Even though, then again, still the woman is usually not in the dominant position, but in, in, in terms, of course, of occupation rather than anything else. But in the Regency period, that was expected behaviours. And I think that's why I can cope with it, whereas I certainly couldn't cope with that today. Now... We'll move from bodice rivers to dystopias. Because you were talking about the end of the world, are there any uh, novels in particular of dystopian visions of the future or the end of the world that you, you enjoyed? Dystopian visions of the future. Or indeed, merely the end of the world. Or merely the end of the world. Well, you know, Hitchhiker's Guide and the restaurant at the end of the universe springs to mind immediately. Um, but that's not particularly dystopian. I don't know. I mean, I read. I read at Ian M. Banks. You know mm. the um, God, what's the series. Called? I know. Immediately you said that. I, I saw the foundation. You're going. That's Asimov. You fool. Yeah. The um, I know the ones you mean. Alchemy yeah. And all yeah. That sort of stuff. But I like science fantasy. Um, I'm a great Terry Pratchett fan. But I also like. Um, Things like Ben Aronovich, The Rivers of London, stuff like that. Uh, they're not dystopian, they're not under the world, they're just, you know, happening today. Magic in the streets of London. Um, I like stuff like, I like, I read all sorts of stuff. What is it about Terry Pratchett? Because I have to admit, I have a problem, not with Terry Pratchett. I, I love, I've got, I've got his book of, of non fiction. Um, I love the ideas of his books, but there is something about that kind of genre. I can't, I can do science fiction very easily. In the same way, Game of Thrones, things like that. Why can't I make that leap? Because I think I'm really missing out with Terry Pratchett. Well, I, I certainly like his early, early ones better than the, than, the, than the later ones. But what I like about them is he takes an idea and, and, and runs with it. So you've got something called um, United Alchemists, and it's all about the film industry. So it's taking the piss out of United Artists. You know, and, and so you have a little, you have a camera, and it's got a little, it's got a little gnome in it painting pictures, all this sort of stuff, you know. And it's and and, and when he's describing the um, describing the different different theories about how the universe got going, he, he says, um, oh, uh, some people think it was two turtles mating, and they call that the Big Bang hypothesis. Uh, but some people think it's the uh, the turtles just been going slowly through 
through time, all the time. That's a steady gate hypothesis. So that's taking the piss out of the big bang and the steady state. And I like the way he just takes those ideas and just with a twist of, 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 of his vocabulary, so clever. You know, just and and you know, and I just love it. It's just, but unfortunately, you know, somebody very dear to me, i.e., my husband, he goes oh, undergraduate humour. It's like. <laughs> <laughs> and on ooh pissed off uh, thank you very much Monica <laughs> my pleasure That's one small step for man. actor writer comedian Ben Miller um, okay. Ben, ben Miller we are backstage at uh, Blue Dot Festival we're, we're opening Blue Dot Festival we are the uh, this is what science has become Robin mm-hmm. it's I mean this is going to be you know I can see you and Brian uh, crowd surfing uh, there's you gonna be a surf lot as of... a wave, I'm going to surf as a particle. It's not working, Brian, it's not working. And that's why I love physics. Yeah. Now, you need to carry me back to the back of the field, <laughs> but I need to make indentations in five different places. Uh, so this is... Um, Firstly, I want to mention your books. The podcast is about books. So you've written two books on science, and I your have. latest one is in particular about the idea of extraterrestrial life and, indeed, our search for extraterrestrial life. Yes, well, it's about life. It's about what is life, really. So the first book is, um, I suppose, yeah, about my favourite bits of, you know, my favourite bits of science. And the second book sort of develops that into what, you know, what can life on Earth tell us about life on other planets? We're at the brink, we're on the brink of this, this exciting new time when our telescopes are going to be able to image the atmospheres of nearby planets. We're going to be able to get the first hints of whether there might be life forms there you know whether there might be life on our nearest neighbor planets of course the chances of there being intelligent life um (laughs) not 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 quite so great uh not even as as great as hg wells said uh or jeff wayne about the chances uh, of anything living on mars it's a million to one they said i think actually i think it was a conservative estimate yes frankly <laughs> the um, so your when did your fascination in terms of say books and television programs when did you I, I presume from quite an early age there was something that you saw I may be wrong that really got you into uh, the idea of, of being scientifically curious I did I watched it was uh, Jacob Bronowski's uh, series on TV The Ascent of Man I think that was the first time that I really connected with science it was largely because I was the uh, I was I was TV was rationed when I was growing up. Um, and I wasn't allowed to watch, certainly wasn't allowed to watch many programmes that were on late at night, apart from The Ascent of Man, for some reason. So I always loved it, so I was allowed to stay up late, and it was an hour long, so you'd be, in a, you know, you'd be up an hour after your normal bedtime. But I loved that story of, uh, you know, the human story, the story of human evolution, and, um, and the, uh, I suppose in a way, it sort of led up to the beginnings of... Uh, Ken Clark's civilization. Well, I didn't realize that at the time, but he was kind of filling in the gaps, mm. wasn't he? Really, um, it is I love Bronowski. I found him show. a superb, absolutely superb presenter. Well, those little books that are still, well, they're still available, you have to kind of find them secondhand. But the little pelican books that came out of, uh, of mm. about human thinking, sometimes taken from lectures, and someone yeah, telling me Chris beautiful. Addison is a, is a great uh, obsessive about Jacob Bronowski as well. And the yeah. stories that you hear about these facts that he was, yeah, this small man in heavy tweed yeah. walking up very steep hills to go and stand yeah. near important skulls hold them before him. and then sometimes he apparently was so exhausted he would actually be carried down by the producer like almost he, he just and it's uh, some people he just do cut say, out the tweed i think he'd have been fine but uh, he was natty 
Yeah, not he was. You, you see yeah. Brian Cox yeah, now. It's an anorak. fantastic sort of emigre accent as well, mm. which I always really love. Nothing like an intellectual who speaks with a slight sort of accent. And just well. a little bit of a speech impediment. So slight speech impediment. Ever so slight, but just talking ever so slightly about really interesting things. <laughs> I think it creates a greater amount of wonder. The, um, <laughs> so in terms of books, did do you remember uh, something that, of course, you, I mean, you studied uh, uh, physics at I university. Did, but the, yes. Is, yeah, yeah. Was there something which illuminated when you went beyond the television into the illumination of... Yeah, uh, it was. It was Einstein's book on... Re- I mean, Einstein's fantastic book on relativity, which is... Uh, you know, Einstein went to great pains to make all of his work accessible to the layman. Um, and, you know, he wrote these fantastic, this uh, fantastic book on on relativity explaining that he, I mean I mean he literally goes through the whole thing uh, for somebody who doesn't really have anything more than you know high school maths and sort of explains every step along the way and I suppose you know he was lucky and that he probably had the last great theory in physics which could be put into everyday language but it was um yeah you know it was it was very much that it was the feeling that you could be an artist and a scientist at the same time that's what I loved so I loved about Bronowski Bronowski had this great you know, he was. It wasn't just about science for him. It was about, you know, he didn't really. That wasn't such a sharp distinction. You felt it wasn't the same for Einstein either. You know, that he was a kind of. That he was also an artist. You know, is that sort of feeling that. Um, yeah, I've never. I've never sort of been the sort of scientist. I've never been a sort of. <laughs> a kind oh of, dear! Uh, <laughs> the face you just made, though, unfortunately, is one that I know you really are. You are something you didn't know you were, Ben Miller. Maybe, yeah, maybe. There but, is a beauty um, actually when you mention Minoski that his first book, when you talk about no divide between science and art, was about William Blake. Right, and I always find yeah, that yeah. interesting. That William Blake, who was, I think, uh, at the very least, say, worried that science would remove the wonder, yet is quoted often. I think in the beginning of one of uh, another book by Jacob Minoski, that famous quote about see the world in a grain of sand to mm-hmm. see heaven in a wild flower and I find that beautiful that in fact taking William Blake's wonder at the magical nature of the world and going you can also wonder at this world at the same time as investigating it and the heaven in the wild flower the uh, world in a grain of sand in fact become even more illuminated well yes I mean is it, is it, is it, and there's another Einstein quote isn't there there's something I mean, I'm going to mangle it slightly but it goes something along the lines of um you know mathematics is the poetry of logical thought you know it's a lovely it's a lovely it's it's a sentiment i particularly agree with i mean i just don't think there's a i don't see a huge difference between the two things to be honest with you i don't see like a i don't see this science and art as being two separate things i think they are it's the same endeavor it's creating models of what we think might be out there you know whether that's the whether you set up a bunch of characters and you try and understand you know, one set of relationships, or whether you're building a mathematical model of what you think a black hole would be like. I don't, I don't see there's a huge... It's imagination, surely. It's imagination and creativity. That's it. They, they may illuminate the world in, in different uh, manners, and, and one is certainly a more practical manner if you're aiming to, say, cure disease. But nevertheless, yeah. <laughs> they, do, they do still... I think that bit yeah, of actually changing the way that you see the world and yes. reading a wonderful thing by John Updike about Magritte the other day, and you do, and you, I went back and looked at some... Oh, yeah, they, they still illuminate about the human condition. They might not 
cure things. But then again, they do sometimes. Yeah. Melancholy. Because um, this soul is soul sickness. Yeah. Soul sickness. What a great. Um, see, one of my favourite phrases is cosmological vertigo. Have you come across this before? Yeah, what does that mean? Apparently, this was the sensation in the late nineteenth century <laughs> that, with the body of knowledge that had been built up, including you know already we had been long since uh, removed from the centre of the universe, and then Darwin comes along and says, "Well, we're all part of this tree of life." No, 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 we're we're separate. No, 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 we are part of. And people like Paul Gauguin, apparently, this new way of seeing our place in the universe was so staggering that it almost made you physically sick. It made you discombobulated. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I think discombobulation can only be a good thing, can't it, when confronted with the universe? I mean, I think you sort of, you sort of feel you've. Uh, yeah, you know, if you feel you've got a grip on it, you probably haven't understood it in the first place. It's my... I mean, it's a wonderful thing. We're doing this show today, aren't we, on uh, Monkey Cage, about... And this is a great topic, isn't it, in science? It's the unknowns, the great unknowns. Those subjects that we... Um, that have just been untouched, really. That we've got these, we've got these very small stepping stones across this, you know this completely unknown landscape and we're, we're comfortable with these tiny little bits of it with general relativity with this little bit of quantum mechanics here but really there's just this vast you know this vast region that we just know nothing about that's and, great uh, first of all how do we yeah. find out what we don't know yes <laughs> well i'm going to have another einstein quote isn't it isn't that great there's another quote that i'm also going to mangle which is something to do with uh, and this is this is properly mangling it, but it's the idea that uh, the every time you illuminate another part of the darkness, you create a greater area of darkness that you that remain that that then becomes unknown. You know, it's a great uh, it's a great mangling of a great quote. <laughs> Very beautiful. But in said, other words, though. our knowledge simply serves to make us feel more, uh, you know vertiginous in the face of the uh, <laughs> unknown that's the problem isn't it we live we live in times where it's very easy to embrace dogma because there's a lot of it about and it can be and social media propels it with such yeah, velocity. it's very handy isn't it you know it's very handy to be able to write all people off with one sort of you know everyone who voted leave is a racist or whatever you know what i mean it's tremendously easy and really satisfying if life were like that it would be it would be just so much easier to know what to do wouldn't it uh, but it's um, and I'm, I'm not going to quote Ben Goldacre. Gold it's more complicated than that. He did some lovely <laughs> breakdowns, actually, of, of, of that. But it, it's more complicated than that. Yeah. It's a, a wonderful collection of essays. Final question before we go and do our sound check in the big yeah. field. Um, Carl Sagan. Uh, this is obviously the Blue Dot Festival. Uh, mm. What does Carl Sagan mean to you? Well, very importantly, to me, he me, he's, a, he's a great contradiction. Um... He's a great contradiction, Carl Sagan, because he's he's an exquisite combination of the credulous and the sceptical. Um, there seemed to be nothing that Carl Sagan wouldn't contemplate as being part of science. You know, so famously, he really, uh, I mean, said the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, which I think is one of the most exciting, you know, frontiers that we hope to talk about in the programme that, you know, later, we should later say, by the way, evening. while this just this signal you can hear in the background is yeah. not uh, anything that's being picked up by the Hubble telescope or indeed uh, the nature yeah. of pulsars. It is merely something reversing to pick up what appear to uh, be breeze blocks. It's like a breeze block. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, sorry. Yes, you were saying about Carl Sagan, the, 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 the credulous <laughs> and the scientific. Someone picking up a breeze block on Mars. 
uh, being picked up by the Lovell telescope. Yeah, so he's a kind of really, he's a really interesting combination for me. Uh, you know, he he um, he wrote a fantastic book about what science. Uh, it was a fantastic book. Uh, the Demon Haunted World. Demon science is a candle in the dark. Amazing science is a candle in the dark. Fantastic book about science and the sceptical pursuit. Um, and he had also he's got this fantastic, almost kind of truck driver way of talking. That's what I sort of love about it. So it's he's like Feynman, you know, you know, he's the last guy that you expect to be talking about quantum mechanics. Yeah. <laughs> it's a kind of just brilliantly, um, uh, you, you know, just sort of. There's a lot of those guys. There's a lot of sort of new New York kind of guys who studied, you know, decided yeah. to get into physics. And well, it seems it's their uh, parents, isn't it? Yeah. It's their second, third generation <laughs> yeah. immigrant families. Yeah. Um, very often also a, a, a Jewish background, sometimes yeah, secondary yeah, yeah. Jewish, sometimes not. And it's like, you know, when their dads were working in fabric cutters or whatever, they would look at their children and they would say, uh, I want you to be the smartest guy My in town. And I, you've got to read this book. Yeah, yeah. and it's great. <laughs> it's you know, Feynman's dad brought him up to basically, say, you know, j- just say, you're going to be a great scientist. I'm determined you're going to be a great scientist. And uh, you go, well, well done, Dad, because you did pretty well in the world of quantum electrodynamics yeah. there, the way you pushed your son towards that. Yeah, so it's wonderful, you know, so there's a kind of clarity to what he says as well, you know, there's a kind of uh, blue-collar, you know, clarity to everything that Carl Sagan says. So he's a kind of mixture, he's kind of a mixture of things. Um, you know, Carl Sagan, you know, for, you know, famous for sort of, you know, investigating UFO phenomena um, and, uh, you know, uh, reopening Project Blue Book and going through and examining all the data and deciding that the evidence for UFOs was crummy. <laughs> And, um, crummy, crummy. Looked, that's great, isn't it? But he it? looked. Yeah. I love that quote. But it, but mm-hmm. he, but it, he, you know, he looked, and he, he was, um, he had great imagination, you know, and, uh, you know, of course, it's it's Carl Sagan, you know, in part certainly we have to thank for the, you know, the Pioneer plaque and the Golden Record on Voyager and this sort of idea that um, we should take seriously our own place in the universe and the place of other, you know, sentient beings. It's a kind of fantastically... I suppose he was part of the 60s as well, wasn't he? There's a kind of sort of slightly new age aspect to it well, as well. Brian, you know? oh, sorry, I don't know if I should be, he said uh, he did meet the guy who uh, went, uh, you know what you need? You need some of the mushrooms I used to give Carl. Really <laughs> helped him understand the world a little bit more. I mean, he was known for, you know, Lester Grinspoon, I think, yeah. wrote about an anonymous scientist who is less anonymous now in terms of him, something like the High Times or one of those publications. Yeah. Um, ben Miller, thanks very much. We'll oh, now continue this conversation yeah. in the big open field of Radio Can I just 4. ask you one last question? Mm. You've got... Uh, Braces, Braces yeah. on your teeth. I got Tell my jaw uh, kind of uh, knocked years ago and yeah. just slightly out of line. And so over a period of time, uh, my teeth have started to go out of line. But as Kirk Lake in the uh, Notting Hill Book Exchange said, because I, I obviously have a dentist right next to the Notting Hill. In fact, my, uh, you know my dentist. You, you work with my dentist. It's Simon, Simon Godley. Godley, yeah. Oh, and, uh, you've got a comedy dentist. Comedy dentist, yeah. And because he knows what cowards we are, he hates to put us in pain. Yeah. And uh, he... Um, and Kirk Lake just went, he said, why are you having braces at your age? You'll be dead soon. And I thought he's right. It's bloody ridiculous. <laughs> just means I can't eat anything beyond thinner soups. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. Cheers, Robin. 
thanks very much for listening that was uh the first of our blue dot specials uh the second one comes for free uh for everyone including uh our, our patreon supporters so there will be a, a second volume of blue dot discussions with uh, amongst others i think sheena crookshank will be on that one as well and dallas campbell uh, all episodes, reading lists, etc., are available at cosmicgenome.com/shambles. That also has the details that if you do have, uh, you would like to donate so that we can keep making those. That's there, and we're on Patreon.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye. Josie Robbins' book shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.